Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 103. Last episode, we heard how Jan Blum and Corey leader Hype had launched a raid on Mzilikatsis and Debele people arraigned along the southern reaches of the Vaal River in 1830, and Mzilikatsis' bloody response, where he not only recovered his cattle, but killed at least 50 Cora. This was to be the first of a series of incidents which convinced Greek clerk Captain Byron Barnes to put together a massive commando and deal with the Indebelli once and for all. Barnes was regarded as the founder of Greek Kualan. He settled north of the Orange River early in the 19th century and was the first Greek to do this. He was also more adventurous than his fellow people and was a profoundly focused nationalist. His spirit still moves the people of what we could call Griqualand today. They're fiercely independent who live around Kuruman, around Appington, Kimberley. The land there is fierce. Only the hardiest people can take the splendid isolation of the searing summer temperatures and the freezing winds in winter. Baron Barnes had left the Cape because he disliked the Dutch and the colonists generally, and he refused to cooperate with authorities when they demanded he hand back escaped slaves. He was far away from their centre of power. Who was going to try and stop him? He became known as a protector of runaway slaves, a man whose name was whispered amongst the slave community of Cape Town. His town's a place for the so-called Hottentots to reach if they could cross the barren Namakwa waste and pass the unfriendly Dutch farms. Barnes was a staunch paternalist when it came to the Tswana around him, presuming that his people were a cut above, he could be condescending. And he was lukewarm about Jan Blum's first plan to raid Mzilikati. He refused to join the commander, but he was going to change his mind as time went on. Byron Barnes could command hundreds of men armed with muskets. He was actually the sharp end of a wedge of mixed-race men and women, colonists in their own way, leading the outward emigrations from the Cape Peninsula. And he had a crucial ally, the missionaries, who were writing of the travails and suffering endured by the Griqua at the hands of the Indebelli. Mzilikazi attacked Griqua hunting parties north of the Malopa River. Barnes himself had hunted there, and he had traded with the Huruchi folk, who by now had been turned into one of the Indebelli vassal peoples. Mzilikazi is also reported to have told Barnes and his Griquas to stay clear of the Indebelli land, which the Griqua had regarded as the ivory hunting grounds. This was not acceptable to the Griqua view of themselves, as superiors to the Tswana, the Sutu, the Ndebele. By early 1831, Baran Barans began to talk in messianic terms that he was sent by God to sweep Mzilikatsi and his gang of bloodthirsty warriors from the fine pastures and glens of the Pakone country, as Robert Moffat, the missionary, wrote in his book, Missionary Labours. The Pakone country was the Haarfeld, just FYI. Byron said he wanted to emancipate the people of the region from Mzilikatsi's thrall. This was not going to be easy. The Ndebele had overrun the Haarfeld and were in command of a large patch of real estate. Although they ostensibly were not locals, they had co-opted others and were now morphing from a people of Zululand with the main royal line of Kamalu into the people of central southern Africa, who called themselves the Ndebele. Barnes soon decided that an attack on Mzilikatsi was required and agitated and lobbied other Greek and Buster peoples, as well as the Kora from Kunwana to Philippolis through late 1830 and into 1831. 
He arrived at Griquatown, Campbell and Philippolis where the locals had already run into the Indibeli during their hunting expeditions and had lost their hunting grounds near the Malopo and across the Haarfeld. Some of these people had a personal axe to grind against the Mzilikatsi for stealing their herds, others for murdering their relatives. But the big motivation was a quest for booty. Everyone eyed Mzilikatsi's rich harvests and vast herds there on the verdant highfelt, where the rolling grassy land appeared covered with his cattle. These beasts glittered like the gold no one knew yet was under the very same felt, or like the diamonds that lay along some of Kimberley's rivers, beckoning and yet unseen, unrecognized, sparkling, waiting for the sharpest of eyes to alight upon them. So the Cora and a hype decided to have another go, despite their thrashing by Nzalikazi only a year before. Others, like the Tlaping and Rolong, the Sutrutswana, were becoming more alarmed by the Indibeli's brazen attacks on the ancient traditional territory. These outsiders were marching all over their ancestors' graves. And so by the end of summer, in 1831, a large commando that has been estimated at somewhere between 900 and 1,300 men gathered together. It's thought that up to 550 of these were Griqua and Kora people, the rest Tlaping and Rolong. The date, June 1831. The place, somewhere north of Kuruman, or between Kuruman and where Colesburg is today. They were on this frontier, which as a concept was not spoken of at the time. The very idea of a frontier was developed long afterwards, where it was defined, if you like. American historian Frederick Jackson Turner first wrote of what he called the frontier in 1893. He believed it was a place that shaped American culture, and of course it shaped South African culture too. It's a place that begins as unsettled and becomes settled by the physical movement of settlers onto the land. Jackson went further and said that land with less than two European settlers per square mile is unsettled, more than two per square mile, and you're now settled. The frontier is a region of continuous transformation because it's the meeting place between urbanizing people and rural people, or more accurately in South Africa, a place where there is no single authority, but where mutual acculturation takes place, and perhaps is still taking place. This is our history, mutual acculturation. Everything is temporary, unstable, fluid, and dynamic. Just when you put your fingers on a fact, it squirms away to reveal another fact. The frontier is also a place where cultures cooperate and clash. It's here at this point in our long series where we begin to construct more fixed identities. What we must understand is that biology does not dictate culture, language and origin. There are black Jews and white Muslims. There are Afrikaner Sangomas and Zulu classical violinists. Color is not culture. As a large African-American said to me while I was watching the musician B.B. King in Boston a few years ago, Wondering whether I should attempt playing the blues on my guitar. Of course, he said, blues is a feeling, not a color. Folks, this is a very difficult mental experiment here in 2023. In the 17th and 18th century, the Khoikhoi did have a generic name for themselves, which were Namaqua versions of what became Khoikhoi. They saw themselves as different from the San, the Dutch, and the Amakosa, then the Tswana, the Rolong, the Tlapping, and so on. Thus, Baron Barnes, who was of Khoikhoi ancestry, was forging his own identity on the felt, just like the Trekboers or even the English. As you've heard, Khoikhoi means men of men, but the Namakwa definition is more interesting. It means we people with domestic animals. 
That was to distinguish from the San, who had no domestic animals and predated on the Khoikhoi on the southern African landscape. The Griqua people have always identified more with their indigenous roots than the Bastards. These were the mixed-race people who back in the 1830s would reinforce their joint Khoi and white ancestry. And so, back to our commando, it was heading off to raid the Ndebele in 1831. What we now imagine as a commando has changed from the idea of what it was back then. The core concept of armed men riding out to achieve some joint aim remains the same. When Baden Barens put together his large commando, it was characterized by an indigenous development logic comprised of leading extended families with followers from diverse groups. Many of these had direct links to the cape and guns. When called upon, some commandos would be 15 to 20 in size, but could rise to Baden's virtual army of 1,300. Each commando group had a captain or captain and the rat or council, which included family heads. They would allow or disallow others to join this group. Political authority was military-orientated and controlled by a small group of men who organized raids and seized the livestock and then indulged in ostentatious displays of wealth. They were conspicuous consumers. It was a patriarchal system, and they went even so far as to state in the constitutions of the time that under no circumstances should the captainship pass on to a woman. This, despite the fact that the real power in many of the surrounding groups, the Matroza and so on, could often reside within the matriarch. The commando members' voting rights were determined by their power, how many guns and horses and cows they possessed. Marriage was monogamous, another difference to local tribes around the Griqua towns. Baron Barnes was a Christian, and he headed off to attack the Indibelia as such. Travelling with him on this major incursion were the Tlaping, who were a Zabantu people. The origin is complex, embracing both Khoikhoi and Sututswana customs and beliefs. They were based in the Langeberg through to the west of the Hartz River in the early 1800s, and up until 1820, they were really good at defending their territory against the Griqua and the colonists. It was the missionary John Campbell who suggested to the Bastards and other mixed peoples to change their names to the Griqua and the main town of Klarwater to Griqua town. In a discussion, the Captains agreed they could all trace their ancestry to the ancient people I mentioned many podcasts ago called the Kariguriqua, and thus it converted many who regarded themselves as swarthy Hollanders, Urlams, Kora, San even, to a single people. Campbell had drawn up the first Griqua constitution with Baden Barents and Adam Koch II and then turned these leaders into evangelists. By 1820, Baden Barents decided to follow Adam Koch II and left Griqua town and headed off further north and his place as local captain was taken by Andres Waterboer. The two leading families were now being headed up by an elected captain of San ancestry and Waterboer could not create a harmonious single people despite his many attempts. All of this against the backdrop of the instability in the East, the Fatkani, the Indibeli. By 1830, the colonial government and the Griqua had reinforced their relationship against this outside threat. Baden Baden's new commander swept out towards Mzilikatsi's southern towns in 1831 and overran several cattle posts. The combined army captured more than 6,000 head of cattle from the Indibeli leader and without much resistance because he had constructed such a formidable name for himself, no one would dare to approach his cows. And of course, 
Baron Barnes should have thought more carefully about exactly what he was up to. On the commander's triumphant return home, they all went to sleep one night on the return journey when Mzilikatsi's impis caught up to them. The Ndebele warriors chopped them to bits. Great carnage followed. The Ndebele surrounded Baran's camp in the dark and surprised them. At least 400 Griqua were killed, let alone the Tlapping and Rolong. This also happens to be one of the most significant battles based on the casualty figure that had ever been fought by two different cultures on the felt up until then. It's a shame we don't know much more about this. As I said previously, the Ndebele early tradition regarding this period is muddled and does not provide us with much detail. Nevertheless, you can imagine the shockwave as missionaries not too far south back along the Orange picked up the stories of this massacre. The Rolong participation in the commander was disastrous for the Griqua. Tawani, who was their leader, then switched sides. If you can't beat them, then join them, he said. By 1832, the Ndebele had sent two ranking councillors to parley with Kunwana of the Rolong. They were now formal subordinates of Mzilikatsi. Nevertheless, the Rolong didn't really trust the Ndebele, who in fact had begun to seize their children as leverage against them or as tribute. It was a kind of social blackmail. The Vikings were famous for doing this. So too the ancient Germanic tribes and the Romans used this trick regularly to keep Gauls and other races of Europe in line. Take their children away and bring them up as Romans, then send them home to Romanize the locals. Mzilikazi had developed a cunning system as he gathered peoples around his centre. Tswana subjects were tricked regularly, at least according to their oral tradition, and the journals kept by missionaries. The modus operandi would be the Ndebele would move into a territory near Tswana village and pretend to be friendly. The villagers would relax. These people aren't so bad. These terrible ones aren't so terrible. Bad mistake. Under the cover of night, the Ndebele MP would surround the village and attack. After defeating them, Mzilikasi would forcibly remove the older men and women from their homes to a distant place. The village would wither, and the younger men and women and their children would be taken to the Indibeli kraals, where they'd be integrated into the ruling elite. That's a very clever way of quickly deflating ancestry and creating a new people, wouldn't you say? It's the elders who retain the ways of the past, and Mzilikasi was an incredible social innovator. By the way, the Australians and Canadians did the same, removing the children of the Aborigines or the First Peoples and sending them to good Catholic schools to learn how to eat peas with a knife and fork. I'll return to what Mzilikatsi was up to by 1833, and it's a story of blood, gore, pain and suffering, raiding, raping, pillaging and other inappropriate activities. But now we need to swing our gaze south once more. Here, the relationship between the missionaries, the Amatkoza and the settlers, was growing more and more complex. The missionaries thought the Amatkoza were living in sin and cursed by damnation. The Amatkoza thought the missionaries were borderline insane, and I'll explain why. Although it's nicely summed up by one young Koza woman, quoted by a Scots missionary of the time, I am young and in health. I have a husband and we possess corn and cattle and milk. Why should I not be happy? Why do I need more? Such disregard for the soul horrified the poor missionaries. So did just about everything else about the Amatosa. Their nudity, circumcision dances, and missionaries reported that their land is filled with fornication, whoredom, and all uncleanliness, witchcraft, their doctors, uh, polygamy, conversions full of frivolousness and filth. Talk about a clash of cultures. 
Not that inner-city Glasgow in 1830 wasn't its own form of frivolousness and filth, whoredom and fornication. It's what you think you see that matters, of course. Between the 1820s and 1830s, the average age of death in the overcrowded Glasgow fell from an extremely low 42 years for men to 37 and from 45 to 38 for women. Typhus ravaged the inner city and it was only brought under control in the 1880s. Up to a third of Glasgow's children suffered from rickets because they didn't get proper food. Then a cholera epidemic killed hundreds in the city in 1830 and the air quality was bad due to industrial pollution, coal fires and the middle class then migrated upwind to Glasgow's west end. In comparison, the Matkos of the first half of the 19th century were far more healthy than the average Glaswegian. Despite that, when Glasgow missionary William Chalmers arrived on the frontier in the late 1820s, he said he was very nearly overpowered when he saw the first naked Tkosa men. Helen Ross, who was the wife of another Glasgow Society missionary, refused to allow her sister to visit from Scotland because the bodies of the male Tkosa are much exposed and she would feel it very disagreeable. As my granny used to say, you don't have to look, you know. With that said, there is another side. For example, the smelling out process where the chiefs sought to find out apparently who was working with the dark side. This was not something we can gloss over. It was brutal. At Kosa woman living near one of the Scots mission stations was accused of witchcraft and had red hot stones laid on her arms and legs to force her to confess. Her skin was burned off. Then she was left lying outside the village for two weeks while her eight-year-old daughter fought off the dogs and the hyenas. Eventually, this poor woman was taken to the mission station and her wounds were dressed while she was being lectured about biblical matters and then she died. These victims of the traditional doctors was actually one of the reasons why Amakosa began to respond positively to the missionaries' messages. This kind of torture dished out on vague threats was similar to the medieval period in Europe, and those who joined new Pentecostal churches in Europe felt inclined to move away from the Inquisitors, the Catholic fundamentalists. For the Amatkosa, the missionaries were a weird bunch, to put it mildly. Their message was obscure, curious, and mysterious. Some recognized how dangerous their preaching was for the entire way of life. It undermined the authority of the chief's and the society, which was balanced on the chief's power. They also watched aghast at the sight of missionary centers where men and women worked in the fields together. This was scandalous. It was women's work, and here were the men tilling fields. <gasps> Shock horror. The missionaries then buried their dead. The Amatkosa did not do this. The bodies were left on the hillside to be consumed by the vultures and scavenging beasts. Here were these men in black, calling on the Amakosa to abandon just about every custom with which they'd been brought up. And speaking of men in black, these missionaries were dressed in long black coats and leggings with cravats, sweating profusely in the heat, surrounded by naked black bodies. The lives of the missionaries were beyond difficult. They were a long way from home. Many suffered heat stroke deprivations. They were bitten by puff adders, attacked by elephants and lions, charged by buffalo, trampled by large herds of antelope, and then surrounded by the silence of the vast African felt, which can cause an aching soul to twitch with happiness or thrash about in alienation. Every Sunday they'd preach to a tiny congregation about how God had a plan. The basic difference between the ideologies was this. 
Damakosa contended with a hidden malevolence full of wrath in this life, where the shades swept through their days and nights. Not afterwards. But the message from the missionaries was that damnation happened after life. They were being accused of bringing on this damnation by doing their ancient naked dance moves, by taking multiple wives, and just about everything else that went with their culture. Needless to say, most Amatkosa were distinctly chilly when it came to the message of hellfire and damnation. When the missionaries first arrived within their territory, the Amatkosa were curious. They'd attend the first few sessions every morning at sunup when the men in black would preach. However, after a few mornings of hearing that they were all going to hell because they loved living their lives too much, this mystery kind of wore off. Then, when they spotted the missionary picking his way across the felt towards them, the men went into their huts or made a fuss about milking one of the cows. The women and the children fled to hide in the bushes. Anything to avoid being lambasted by this crazy man in his bizarre outfit. The missionaries then realized they were being monitored, so they began to arrive early. But the Amakosa village dogs would bark, providing ample warning for the men to go to do something important and the women and children to hide. The men in black carried sticks to ward off these less than friendly Amakosa dogs, which would then approach and bite. And the missionaries then besieged the villagers. In some cases, the local villagers decided to leave rather than chase away this becloaked and ominous force. Some of the people actually moved their kraals further away from the missionaries instead of attacking their source of harassment. By now, the ravages of the inner territories had begun to buffet the Amatkosa as well. The Pondo, the Tembo, the Taleka reported about all the people who started appearing as refugees. These far-flung folks felt the effect, and the oral history is full of what was going on. The Amatkosa living closer to the Amazulu were aware of the British being both threats and allies. The missionaries were there linked to the protection from these African threats. It was a slow process. And by 1830, the Kwebe, these people who had been most affected by the colonial process, began to respond to the Wesleyan proselytizing. They were the first Amatkosa-speaking people to reflect the tension of the impact of Christianization. It all came down to one of the ruling dynasty's chiefs called Kama, brother of Pato, who was the regent. Pato was a convert, but only because he recognized how the missionaries created order out of chaos, he had no interest in the gospel itself. Kama, on the other hand, was a proper convert, but also became the symbol of an anguished conflict between the traditional and the new. And the first place he pushed back was against the culture of polygamy. He was six feet tall and around 28 years old when his troubles started. He spent a lot of time with the missionaries dressed in western clothes. At other times, he'd wear his traditional Amakosa leopardskin cloak. Kama was married to one of Ingrika's daughters, but was being earmarked for a second bride and arranged marriage to a girl with appropriate connections. He refused three of these new brides in a row to the consternation of his relatives. The last was the last straw. He fobbed off the daughter of a Tembu chief, and you know how important Tembu princesses were in Amakosa's society. When the Kunukwebi councillors came to force him to accept his new bride, he made a point of threatening to go and live in Grahamstown amongst the English settlers. Karma became one of the Wesleyans' celebrated conversions, but amongst the Amakosa, the Kunukwebi became associated with the settlers. Karma surrendered his hereditary status and obligations, said others. 
But there was something else which the Amatkhoza, in fact, all peoples of southern Africa were now mourning. Their wilderness, the most ancient heritage of all, upon which everything revolved, was desolated. The destruction of wildlife had crept forward with the Griqua, the Khoikhoi, the trek boers from the Cape, then the English. The biggest and most splendid creatures went first, and of course, the most splendid were the elephants. These died the cruelest deaths, poked and prodded with spears first, then impaled in pits, or shot up with musket balls, floundering and collapsing. The botanists and zoologists of the time wrote of this catastrophe, while the Amatkoza were conscious of the indecent pursuit of animals towards what they saw as a finite end. When they killed one of these beasts, they would call the animal a great lord and apologize for their actions. The San watched the Koi Koi kill the elephant and sell their tusks through to traders. Then later, the Nguni, after them, the Dutch, then the English. So folks, as we end this episode, it's a fact that is hard to face. The tragedy of the elephant was a symbol of the coming storms of change. The San had lived for tens of thousands of years with the elephant, perhaps hundreds of thousands. But it would not survive the coming of the Bantu farmers of the 1st and 2nd millennium AD, nor the accelerated cleansing of the felt with the coming of the colonists and their guns from Europe. This animal associated with an ageless peace, a noble animal, ambling through the bush with its mesmerizing rhythms, coiling and uncoiling its trunk, elevated above snarling tooth and claw, vast, graceful, its eyes perceiving. This and other animals would be decimated for the ivory skins and sometimes just for fun. History is a timeline of convulsions and another was on its way, symbolized by the annihilation of the pachyderms. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. You can head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to send an email, or through Twitter, at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.